I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimist. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So while there are many podcasts out there that get funding through sponsors, big ad revenue, we at Climate Optimist rely on donations to bring you the programming you hear each week. So if you're a regular listener and haven't donated yet, consider joining our community of donors. Just head over to our website, climateoptimist.co, and click the donate button. So the vast majority of conversation around climate change is rightfully focused on mitigation. You know, we need a rapid emission reduction over the next decade to avoid, you know, what scientists call a climate tipping point or a layperson terms climate Armageddon. However, the reality is no matter how quickly we cut emissions, we're at a point where climate impacts are going to get worse before they get better. And so given that, we thought it was time we had a conversation with an expert about the topic of climate adaptation. But before we go there, Thomas, I'll let you uh, share this week's uh, reason for hope. Thanks, Jason. Uh, scientists have discovered the mechanism for the production of salicylic acid in plants and how to activate this production through gene modification. Plants produce more salicylic acid when they get attacked by pathogens and insects. But even with two days above 86 degrees Fahrenheit or 30 degrees Celsius, plants can't produce enough acid to defend themselves. As high temperatures become more frequent with climate change, this problem is becoming worse. So with this discovery, scientists have proven that they can turn on a gene needed uh, for the plant to continue to produce acid even at these higher temperatures. And this, this marks a huge breakthrough for plants uh, and in particular those that we rely on for food. Yeah, it seems like a, a really exciting discovery. And, and, you know, I think if we use it correctly, it could be a way to, you know, to help us with addressing, you know, food production as climate change makes it harder to grow our food. Um, but obviously at the same time, something we need to be careful with because if it's used, you know, incorrectly or used in a way that somehow implies that we can keep warming the planet, um, that's when it becomes problematic. Yeah, I think there are going to be a lot of plant species out there that are not going to be on our priority list because for some reason or another, they don't produce food or we don't see them as value right now, but they're all part of the biosphere. So if we forget about you know, looking after plant species that, um, might be heavily impacted by climate change, but we're not directly using them for food. And hence, we haven't been focused on you know, protecting uh, further iterations of that uh, plant variety. Then all of a sudden, we, we find ourselves in trouble because plants that we are heavily dependent on for, say, the creation of oxygen, like certain tree species that might be thousands of years old, um, they could be in a, quite a predicament as they can't uh, adapt fast enough to the changing climate. Yeah, I think with any sort of tech, technological discovery like this, it's like there there's the potential upside if it's used smartly. But yeah, in, in no way can this be a, a way for us to continue to to you know put carbon up in the air. We need to you know move aggressively to reduce it, and hopefully this just offers a way to minimize damage. So pivoting to our main topic, our guest today is Lisa Shipper. As a scientist, her focus is adaptation and vulnerability to climate change in the global south, so Africa, South America, etc., to understand the relationship between adaptation and development. She is especially interested in the socio-cultural drivers of vulnerability, including gender, culture, and in particular, religion. 
Lisa led a chapter in the recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report on impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability, published earlier this year, and she is based at the University of Oxford. Excited to uh, have her on the program. Lisa, welcome to Climate Optimist. Thank you. So we'll start you off with a basic question. When you think about efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful is primarily the fact that when I started working on climate change uh, around the mid-1990s, I had to explain it to every single person I met, every single person (laughs) on the street, and even, you know, other kind of professional people. And these days, you don't have to do that. And I think that, you know, that's, well, sure, there's quite a lot of time has gone by, but I still think that it's fantastic that there's so many that, you know, the awareness is, is there and also action. I mean, it's not just, just about awareness, but that there is just so much action as well. So, I mean, I, that makes me hopeful. Um, and, it's, and I think the solidarity also among people who are really engaged, scientists and activists and uh, practitioners, there's, you know, there's, there's that, that's also very hopeful because, you know, when we might feel down one day, we can kind of help each other and, and you know, keep each other up so that the next day I'll feel better. And then somebody else is feeling down negative and then I can help that person. So, I mean, I think that's, yeah, those things make me hopeful. Yeah. I, I, I definitely feel like, you know, and hear from other guests that not just the awareness of climate change, but this growing you know, desire for action and, and growing number of people who are taking action. So it is it is positive to see, and it's obviously positive to hear it from so many people that, that that's taking place. And I guess that brings up another question. How did you find your way into becoming a, a climate scientist? Well, I guess you could say that I, in some ways my way was already laid out for me because my father worked in energy efficiency and transport and was a big kind of energy efficiency advocate. And so the issues of sort of resources, scarce resources and human behavior were things that I was aware of very early on in my life. And so when I went to uh, do my undergraduate degree, yeah, it was pretty obvious for me that environmental science was the way to go. And so it was kind of, and then I pretty quickly fell into climate change as the topic that I was interested in. So it's been a long time that I've, I've been involved in this, and I don't think I ever considered any other career. But I have to say that when I finished, even my PhD, so I finished my PhD in the end of 2004, there were not really any jobs on adaptation. So, you know, it's been kind of a sort of, a fight to get to find something that feels like it's really meaningful, but also that it feel that it's like actually having an impact on the world. Uh, so I, I think I, I did make the right career choice, but I mean, it was in some ways it was, <laughs> it could have gone badly as well. Well, badly, I guess it wouldn't have been, if it had gone badly, that would have meant that there wouldn't be any jobs, which mean maybe that climate change wasn't such a big problem. So maybe we should, like, should have seen that. As well. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, climate change is still here in 2022, even though, you know, we thought by 1997 that with the Kyoto Protocol, that greenhouse gas emissions would actually be going down. Um, but that hasn't really happened. So. Well, fingers crossed that we're we're indeed getting there. Um, it is it has been a long road of waiting, that's for sure. Well, for those who don't know, um, let's talk a little bit about climate adaptation. Uh, if you could explain, you know, what it is and and why it's why it's so important. 
Well, so in fact, climate adaptation is is important now, especially because we haven't been able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So climate change is out there on the doorstep of nearly every single person on the planet. And what happens, climate change, is of course that it changes things around us. It changes, it increases temperature, it changes uh, hazards, it makes you know more flooding, flooding when we're not expecting it, drought when we're not expecting it, all sorts of, of things like that. So in order to be able to live in a world that has all these changes, we need to somehow change ourselves. And so adaptation is about adjusting the way that we behave in order to be able to live in this new world. Uh, and we talk about adaptation, so you can talk about human adaptation. That's really our, about us and our behavior. But it also involves things like infrastructure that we need to change. So we need to change, move where the roads are because maybe they're too close to the coast and we're now having more sea surges because of the rising sea levels and, and so on. And so we need to rethink where do the roads go. As it gets hotter in many places, we need to rethink the way that we build houses and, and office buildings and that sort of thing. So the, all of those things are part of adaptation. But then there's also, we talk about the adaptation of ecosystems, because of course, the concept of adaptation comes from ecology. For over a long, long period, uh, ecosystems have adapted to the way that, that the world has changed, to the, the new species that come in and the species that die off. And these kinds of changes They've typically come over this very, very long time. Now we're expecting the ecosystems to adapt more quickly to this rapid change in climate. Um, right. But they also can adapt. So, I mean, adaptation is not only about people. It's also about um, natural systems. So really holistic. So everything from our you know, behaviors to the environment that we live in to our infrastructure, uh, sort of all-encompassing. Well, it is, as someone who is focused a lot on mitigation, I'm wondering if you could talk about how we sort of balance our, our efforts to sort of adapt and to mitigate climate change and maybe how those two play together. The most important thing we have to do is reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We have to mitigate. That's because we now have an abundance of evidence that shows that even our capacity to adapt is limited by global warming levels. So the first priority is reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But because we have such high levels of greenhouse gas gases in the atmosphere, there are so many changes that we're not going to be able to avoid. And so we also need to think about adapting. And it's important to realize that in many places around the world, adaptation is the most important thing. And in, in other places, reducing greenhouse gas emissions is going to be the priority. That's because of the historical responsibility. It's the rich countries who have emitted the most, and they also have the responsibility to reduce their emissions. They still have, mostly, they still have the biggest emissions. Uh, whereas the poorer countries in the global south, many of them haven't emitted anything, almost, compared to some other countries. And so they're, but they are feeling the impacts of climate change, and they really need support. It's not so much about sort of balancing in an individual location and kind of trade-offs. There are trade-offs also, but it's really about looking kind of geographically and, and thinking historically sort of who's responsible for taking, you know, really taking the action on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So in other words, like, let's say Europe or the United States, we, you know, are responsible for the bulk of the historical carbon emissions and obviously continue to emit. So mitigation needs to be sort of forefront for us. There may be things that we have to change in order to adapt to what's coming. But 
when we're talking about adaptation, it's really those countries, you know, in as you said, in the global south who have emitted next to nothing, but are clearly going to be impacted, if not already being impacted. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, like you said, most everywhere we now have to think about adaptation. It's not, it's not really an option for many places to not think about adaptation because there are farmers everywhere, there are people who are exposed everywhere, there are people who are living in places that are, are now or in the very near future going to be more exposed to climate impacts. But when we think about limited budget, the, the absolute priority globally is to get those greenhouse gas emissions down as much as we can. Indeed. Well, I'm wondering for people's benefit, uh, maybe you talked a little bit about like roads, maybe some examples there, but what does adaptation look like when it's done well? So scientists are a little bit, I would say, not divided, but uncomfortable suggesting that there is such a thing as a good example of adaptation to climate change. And the reason for that is (laughs) (laughs) because we... You know, climate is constantly changing. It continues to change. We're still increasing our greenhouse gas emissions. And even when we stop, it'll still take a while before we get the global warming levels down. And some of the changes that that we have now are possibly irreversible. So there are things that we just, that we're going to have to live with. So different kind of different state, if you want. And it's, it's hard to say that, you know, at this given point, we, this is a good example of adaptation because maybe in two years things will have changed and whatever we've done isn't sufficient. Infrastructure is a good example because infrastructure, to some extent, it's a, it's a huge investment almost everywhere. And it is a, a relatively big investment compared to other kinds of strategies. And it, it, it sort of locks you into a specific pathway. Uh, you end up deciding you're going to put a road in a you know different location. So when the road is placed in a specific location, to make that change again, first of all, it would be another huge investment. And second of all, it would maybe involve all sorts of secondary things like you know businesses would have to relocate, people would have to relocate their homes. I mean, all these things would just be just be a bit too much. So the point is that if we want to really be kind of critical of, of, you know, can we see good adaptation, we have to look at the kinds of things that seem to work really well. But we can also look at the things that don't work well and say, these are things we want to avoid. And we have more examples of things that don't work well right now um, that, in fact, are making people worse off. So maladaptation. But we shouldn't see that as something necessarily problematic because it's good that we know what these things are. It's good that we know what's causing maladaptation so that we can try to avoid them. Most of them are actually relatively straightforward things that have to be changed specifically in planning processes. But yeah, so if we want to talk about a good example of adaptation, typically the the best examples are very small scale and very localized. So one example that I use over and over again is a uh, project that was run by an NGO in Bangladesh quite a, a few years ago now, where they noticed that when there was a lot of flooding, people were losing their chickens because chickens can't swim when it floods, and so they were drowning. So the NGO then suggested, maybe we should try to give you ducks instead, and because, of course, ducks can swim. And so right. then, actually, it ended up being a huge success. In fact, to the point where there were restaurants in the area that started to make these new menu, these menus and recipes with duck meat instead of chicken. So it worked out kind of locally for people. They Every time it flooded, 
they didn't lose all of their poultry, but also, um, yeah, it was something that people seemed to enjoy. But the reason that worked was because it's very, very localized. It was a kind of a, an easy replacement and there wasn't any kind of dependence. So they weren't like producing something that needed to be sold elsewhere that then wasn't desired by that other market, essentially. So, you know, in, in that sense, it, it's a very specific example. And I think those are the kinds of things that you would see that are, are probably successful. But of course, the bigger kinds of transformative, like really major changes that we need for adaptation in some places, there will always be trade-offs. And so that's the question of, you know, how can you declare something a success when you know there's always going to be some kind of trade-offs? We need to just make sure that we can minimize those, those trade-offs and be aware of them. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a tricky one. And I think part of the reason why we're struggling so much with putting adaptation into place is because of this multiple different understandings of what it actually should be, because we don't have that many examples that are really great. <laughs> gotcha. Well, and, you know, obviously making mistakes uh, can be valuable in terms of lessons learned. What, I guess on the other side, what would be some examples of maladaptation, as you speak, things that have you know, we're in maybe started with good intentions, but uh, produced results that were actually problematic. What we see over and over again with maladaptation is that local contexts, and particularly what makes people vulnerable to climate change in the first place. So why are they sensitive? Why are they exposed? Those that context is often not included in the adaptation planning process. And when that isn't included, most of these sort of it doesn't factor in all of the things that are happening, all, all of the sort of, yeah, the conditions. And that tends to lead to failure and can then lead to people actually becoming more vulnerable to climate change as a result of the adaptation strategy. And that's what we call maladaptation. So very, very commonly, there are adaptation projects planned elsewhere, and then they're sort of, they brought, they're brought to a specific location. There's not sufficient consultation with a local actors the local people uh, and then so the people who are implementing the project don't really understand the context the people who are living in the location don't necessarily want to participate or cooperate with the project and so we get these that's kind of the classic example but you also have examples where people think too narrowly about what the strategy is supposed to be for and tend end up marginalizing or kind of excluding certain groups who are the most, maybe the most vulnerable to climate change in the first place. And you see, we have examples all over the place where you kind of projects that are there to help farmers. So help them maybe with irrigation or other kinds of things because it's getting drier. And they would then, to participate in the project, a person would need to show their land ownership. So prove that they own the land. But many people in many places don't have that kind of paper available or that kind of documentation or evidence to be able to prove that they own the land. And so as a consequence, they get excluded from the project. We can also say that those kind of people who, who don't have that kind of formal documentation are probably also more marginalized in other kinds of contexts. So a project like that would reinforce existing vulnerability and make those people sort of even worse off. So it sounds like in a way, lowering the risk of adaptation, maladaptation is about ensuring that there is sort of this robust, inclusive process that really accounts for, you know, all the stakeholders and accounts for, you know, the unique, maybe local 
variables that might be impacting them as opposed to bringing in sort of this, you know, grand plan that um, isn't location specific. Yeah, I mean, you can also see that in many places there are there is discrimination against certain groups. So they might people might be, you know, for religious beliefs or from political perspectives or uh, gender, they may be discriminated against and as a consequence, not invited to meetings. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody from outside has to always be coming in, but it could be even internally that people are excluded from the decision making process. And again, most commonly, those kinds of people would be the ones who would be living in the most exposed areas because they wouldn't have the opportunity to to live in a better place. I mean, it's just sort of that pattern of marginalization and discrimination that that gets repeated over and over again. So you you've spoken to this you know to some degree already, but I had you know a question here about really what are the the primary barriers to successful adaptation, and from your perspective, you know what are the things that we need to do to to address them. Yeah, so because adaptation came sort of after greenhouse gas emissions or mitigation as in terms of the priorities in the global climate change policy discussion, there have been a lot of discussions around exactly what it is. And so, as I've already said, the sort of the, the confusion around what we're looking for in adaptation, is it really just about addressing kind of immediate impacts of climate change, or do we need to look a little bit further in the future? Another school of thought, which I think I belong to, is thinking about, you know, how do we close development gaps through adaptation strategies? Because they're so closely linked. There's so much about what we need to do in the global south, in the poorest places, to adapt to climate change that is also basically the same as development, as sustainable development. Um, so the, the, the issue is we have many different understandings of what the purpose of adaptation is. And, and so that, that's one issue. Then the other issue is that we really need a lot of money for adaptation. And so if there is a huge discussion in the global policy process around the need for funding. And, and there is a number that keeps floating around, which is 100 billion US dollars for adaptation. We pretty much can say that that's not at all enough. But that's quite sure. a lot of money still. So it's sort of the question is, you know, who is going to actually put that money in the pot? Because so far, only a few countries have contributed a little bit. And once we get all that money, how can we make sure that adaptation projects work? And that's where we come back to, I think, I guess, the third barrier, which is ensuring that we're implementing projects that don't end up in maladaptation. And then possibly then the fourth barrier is, you know, the time is ticking. And as we saw in the, the IPCC report that came out in February this year, there one of the major limits to adaptation is global warming level. And as we approach closer and closer to 1.5 degrees above Celsius, above pre-industrial temperatures, we actually have, we're going to see a lot of adaptation strategies that probably don't work any longer. So all of these things, you know, sorting out our understanding of adaptation, making sure we've got the money, and then also ensuring that we implement the projects well, has to be done pretty quickly. Because as we're, you know, we're already kind of at 1.2 degrees at global average. So, you know, it's clearly complex, but obviously that shouldn't deter us from from moving forward with adaptation. Sounds like, you know, securing the money, having, you know, a thoughtful process, being mindful of, of local impacts. And then as I'm hearing you, which we talked about earlier, 
aggressively addressing mitigation feels equally important to the success of adaptation. I guess, you know, for our listeners, we always want to give them some way to get engaged. What, you know, as individuals, what can we do to help scale up and ensure adaptation is is successful? So I think, yeah, there are things, but primarily probably it's the awareness of what adaptation is and the fact that we're all going to have to do it. But of course, on a bigger scale, from an individual's perspective, the real kind of adaptation efforts are still going to be, you know, pushing your government on climate change action in general. I think that's, that's, you know, still, and for those of us in places where we have, you know, voting rights, that's, that still remains an incredibly powerful and important uh, part of our, our weapons to fight against climate change. Well, it's good to hear you say that because I know I, I preach it to our listeners a lot. <laughs> um, well, Lisa wanted to say thank you for coming on and helping educate us on such a not only important but but complex topic of adaptation. And hopefully folks walk away with a better understanding of, of adaptation and you know and what we need to do to to be effective. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise. Thank you so much. So Thomas, what were your thoughts on the interview and, and how we should be responding to what uh, Lisa laid out for us? Yeah, thanks, Jason. I mean, I think it was really interesting hearing a perspective from somebody that's so heavily focused on an area of the whole climate change uh, side of things that maybe hasn't got as much attention in previous years as it's starting to get now as we realize that uh, climate change is here and now. It's not just something that's going to be happening in the future. The, the part I, I really like about the whole adaptation side of things is where it um, joins forces with the mitigation side. So you know, for me, it's like home energy efficiency, building energy efficiency, things like that, where not only do you make uh, the resident's life uh, more comfortable in the future and less expensive, but at the same time, you're reducing those CO2 emissions of somebody's home, business, a facility um, simultaneously. How about you, Jason? I came away, you know, sort of reinforced my idea that we really, you know, we obviously have to prioritize mitigation, but we can't forget about, you know, like we've talked about before, climate justice and this idea that there are all these vulnerable folks who have, you know, really done little to nothing to contribute to climate change and, you know, are effectively paying for the sins of, you know, all the rich countries out there. So I, you know, I feel like we, as the developed world, you know, owe the the vulnerable countries really a huge debt. I mean, when you look at the historical emissions of the US and Europe together, it's almost half of all greenhouse gas emissions emitted. And you compare that to, you know, say Africa and South America together have contributed only 6% to historical emissions. So it just further underscores this disparity where you have, you know, all of these countries that have benefited from fossil fuels and had this growth and been able to do these things. And now it's all these countries that are, were already vulnerable, they're going to be hit worst by climate change. And so that's where it's clearly important for us to prioritize efforts to help them to adapt and become more resilient. You know, the first place that really needs to start is on the finance side of things. You've got the US in a place where, you know, the climate action tracker is rating us as critically insufficient 
when it comes to climate finance and and the EU as as insufficient. So I think first step is is really you know getting that money out there and getting it out there now so that these projects can take place and actually have their intended benefit. Yeah, like I'm totally on board with that. I, I think it in parallel to that, that there needs to be uh, more of a focus for us in developed nations to further drive the technology development that is necessary so that we can deliver solutions uh, to these developing nations that maybe don't have the R&D or technical capabilities to go out on a limb and develop new solutions themselves. And the same can be said about things like building codes, for example. They, you know, A smaller, less developed nation might not have the resources to develop a building code on their own. So what they end up doing is adopting those from developed countries. And so if we have more aggressive building standards that um, provide long-term climate mitigation and long-term emissions mitigation, then everybody's better off for it as these developing nations end up adopting uh, building standards that we've already developed. Yeah, I mean... The the reality is these countries are already suffering, and you know when you're talking about things like infrastructure projects that cost a lot of money, you can't afford to move the road once and then move it again. So when they're talking about you know building a building, being able to build that building so that it's obviously resilient, but also you know energy efficient, and obviously doing it in a way that we're not causing you know maladaptation, because you know I think we all know of times when there's sort of this well intended effort that was put in place to address a problem and, you know, ends up making a problem worse. Yeah, I I think an example that we probably touched on earlier is drought adaptation and drought prevention. And sometimes you'll see governments um, who will go and put a significant amount of money into irrigation networks and so forth with the idea that they're going to be supposedly used for you know, drought prevention in the future, but really what they get used for is increasing productivity during the good years and more dependence upon the existing water resource. And then all of a sudden, when that water resource runs dry in a very dry year, everybody's affected even more because they've become so dependent upon that uh, water resource. So that that can be you know, balanced against things such as encouraging farmers instead to develop high soil carbon content, which in its own right, helps you know, mitigate CO2 emissions by capturing that in the soil, but at the same time provides a, a sponge, so to speak, in the soil for absorbing water and minimizing runoff and helping those farmers through dry years. Yeah, I, I think it is this, this kind of delicate push and pull where we need to get the money out there. We need to get working on adaptation quickly, but you know we need to do it in a way that's smart. So given all this discussion of, of adaptation, you know, we thought this week we'd provide folks with an opportunity to get more involved. And while there are many great organizations that are working out there to help communities adapt to climate change, the Nature Conservancy is one of our favorites. They have a vast array of programs focused on, you know, natural solutions to climate change and and do a ton of work, you know, in in the resiliency space as well. They work on building coastal resilience, making cities more resilient with things like increased green space, you know, trees and wetlands. And, you know, some of those projects fit into what we talked about where, you know, it's really both mitigation and adaptation at the same time. So encourage everybody to 
head over to the Nature Conservancy site and look for an opportunity to sign up for one of their their volunteer events. And you know, if you're in a place where there isn't a volunteer event, you know, consider sending a donation their way. Any additional thoughts, Mills? Yeah, I think the best part about things like the Nature Conservancy is the ability to meet like-minded people because ultimately anything is possible and we can achieve great things if we work together and stay motivated and stay focused on this. Yeah, we, we've got to stick together. And obviously we're big here, you know, climate optimists about hope because, you know, in the absence of hope, we can't address the the crisis in front of us. So get out there and and meet your fellow, you know, climate activists and and do some good work together. Well, that's all for this week's episode. Thanks as always for for tuning in. Come back next week when we'll be digging into the recent executive orders by the Biden administration intended to help with climate change. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast. Mm-hmm.